Welcome to the Constant Investors Spotlight interview with Alan Kohler. And today I'm talking to Jim Chalmers, who has just written a book with Mike Quigley called Changing Jobs, The Fair Go in the New Machine Age. Now, if you see this book in the bookshop, you'll see my name on the cover um, because they asked me to do a cover note on the book, which I was very pleased to do because I liked it. I read it, thought it was great. Um, And uh, my comment on the cover is, the first book I've read that brings what's happening around the world to Australia. Great analysis of a genuine but under-discussed issue. And I think it is under-discussed. And I think it's a really important issue for investors, as I'm sure you would realise, given all the stuff we've been doing lately on technology and uh, artificial intelligence. Jim and Mike have uh, looked at the social consequences uh, of that, political consequences as well. Look back at history industrial revolution, agricultural revolution before that. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to just catch up with Jim at least to find out, what, uh, to, to learn a bit more about the book and uh, what's going on uh, as a sort of a taste uh, of uh, what he and Mike have found um, and might uh, encourage you to go and buy it. So here's Jim Chalmers, who is the Labor MP and Shadow Minister for Finance. And I think he's the uh, MP for Logan in Queensland. And Mike Quigley, of course, used to be the CEO of Australia's NBN company uh, before being replaced by Bill Morrow. But anyway, uh, here's Jim Chalmers. Well, Jim, um, it feels a bit like the book's fairly pessimistic. Are you a pessimist? Oh, not at all, Alan. I think there's a tremendous upside to technological change. I think it has the capacity to address, if not overcome, you know, a whole range of obstacles to a good life in a thriving society. But a lot of people have got some genuine anxieties uh, about where they fit in workplaces in particular, which are dominated by machines. And so what we've tried to do here, Mike Quigley and I in this new book, is we've tried to say, well, how do we address some of the things that people are worried about without denying ourselves some of the broader aggregate benefits of technological change? But it does seem to me that the, in, in some ways the central point of your book is the sentence that there is no such thing as technological trickle-down. I mean, that is is a slightly pessimistic thing to say. I mean, you know, a lot of people, a lot of technologists think that the whole thing is you just have the technology and then everyone will benefit. You seem to be saying that's not the case. No. What I'm saying is, and what Mike and I are saying, is that we need to care about how opportunity is distributed uh, in the new machine age. We think that there are broadly three... Uh, ways to deal with it, three paths that uh, policymakers can go down. The first is that technological trickle-down that you just referred to. Uh, And I think that's the sort of, um, you know, Malcolm Turnbull approach to, you know, these are exciting times and we just let it rip and uh, the cards can fall where they may and and we'll see how we go. We think that's um, not the right way to go. The other extreme, we've got the sort of one nation end of things, which pretends you know, that we can hold back some of these changes, which is also unrealistic and ultimately undesirable. And so what we say in the book is that we can make some meaningful interventions when it comes to our schools and skills, when it comes to our social security system, industrial relations, and even in the way that we live our lives so that we can make some of this technological change work for us and not against us. Well, you just, you just in that answer, you introduce politics into it, and you don't do that in the book. The book is fairly apolitical, if I can put it that way. I mean, uh, um, uh, don't you think it's a, a not a good idea? I mean, how, uh, why, why would you say it's political? 
Oh, I don't think it is a political book. I think your assessment of it is uh, no. I'm well saying done. I'm saying it's not a political book. You just introduced yeah. politics into. Well, the I just interview. think that there are three schools of thought, um, and one, you know, people can make their own assessment, but I think one is the sort of, um, uh, you know, populist protectionist end, which says that we can, um, you know, prevent some of these changes happening. The other end is the, you know, the kind of let it rip crowd. All I'm saying is that ours is sort of a third approach, which says that we can make some intelligent uh, decisions now uh, which, um, you know, just properly distribute opportunity in the new machine age and let people, um, you know, and give people a chance to succeed. It is not a partisan book. You're quite right. Um, But I think that there are those three schools of thought and ours is the third one. You've done a fair bit of work on the lessons of the Industrial Revolution and, in fact, all uh, technological revolutions, including agriculture. What did you tell... Explain to us what you found... Yeah, I think this is really the the sort of the seventh uh, big revolution in our in our workplaces and in our society. Uh, you had the agricultural revolution the first time round, then the scientific, then the British agricultural, then the industrial revolution, which everybody knows a lot about. Then you had electrification, and then you had the digital uh, revolution or the computer revolution, which started, you know, sort of around the middle of last century with the advent of transistors, and then you had the World Wide Web and all of that sort of thing. But I think this revolution is a bit different uh, because those first six big changes um, did a lot to replace and replicate human effort, whereas this one, the machine age, this revolution that we are confronting now, uh, does more to uh, to replace human traits, things like decision-making and problem-solving and learning uh, and observation and all of those sorts of things which make us human. And that, that's what makes this revolution something different entirely from the six that went before it. Do you mean that the first six were about helping humans do things and this one's about replacing them? Well, there, some people would put it that way. I prefer to think of it the first six replaced human effort. Uh, this one has the capacity to replace, you know, elements of what makes us human, those decision-making um, aspects. And what's really happened here is because computer power has gone through the roof and because algorithms are becoming more and more sophisticated, it means that machines can learn from big sets of data. And so they can continually improve with things like speech recognition or image recognition, even things like medical diagnoses, the sorts of things that we used to consider to be inherently human in the new machine age can be performed by uh, artificial intelligence and robots. You say that the Industrial Revolution didn't result in increased unemployment, but it did result in a lot of dislocation and probably arguably led to Marxism, didn't it? Oh, a hell of a lot of dislocation. And uh, we tell the story in the book of, you know, the experience of one particular uh, young woman, what her life was like in the Industrial Revolution, the very poor working conditions, uh, for example. Tell Uh, Tell us that story. I think that's quite interesting. Well, there was a parliamentary inquiry, um, and as part of the parliamentary inquiry in the UK, uh, this uh, young woman talked about what a day was like, you know, showing up uh, very early, leaving very late, having very little in the way of uh, breaks, uh, all kinds of... You forgot, um, the, you forgot the main point, Jim, which was that she was six years old. <laughs> and a lot of child labour, of course, yes, and all of these things. And until the uh, government really caught up with the appropriate you know, regulations and the appropriate uh, public policy responses, then that that dislocation really did a lot of harm to people. And that's one of the lessons that we're picking up here is to say, even though this revolution is different, even though the machine age is different to 
the changes we've seen before, we still need to have some anticipation and collaboration and foresight and planning to make sure that, you know, humans do have a place in these changes, that they're not, uh, that their lives aren't ruined by these changes and that they can take advantage of those big upsides to technological change. One of the things that I've been on about is the is the way that technology technological change this time around is coming on the back of uh, the impact of globalisation. And, and you don't go into that in too much detail, but you do kind of hint at it. Well, there's a table on page 41 um, of data from Michael Coeli and Jeff Borland uh, looking at um, the decline in um, middle pay op- op- uh, occupations of 19% between 1966 and 2011 while at the same time highest pay occupations rose 17%. So, I mean, what, and that presumably, that period, 66 to 2011, was primarily about globalisation. Is that right? Yeah, we talk a little bit about globalisation uh, in the book. It is an important uh, factor. We see it through the prism of what's called labour linking, which is the idea that as technology improves, it doesn't really matter where the task is performed. And so you get a lot of... Um, a lot of jobs being performed elsewhere and countries have to choose what part of these big global value chains they want to occupy. That comes down to things like technology and skills and infrastructure and also things like wages, uh, as you know. And what that table, the story that that table that you refer to on page 41, uh, the story that it tells is really about the hollowing out of middle income jobs, which is another new phenomenon. A lot of your uh, listeners, a lot of people that I run into in my electorate and beyond, are very familiar with the story about robots and automation replacing low-skilled jobs, you know, in factories, process workers, that sort of thing. But what we need to become used to and what we need to address is that technology has the capacity to hollow out the middle-income jobs. Jobs like translation, for example, is one that we spend a lot of time uh, talking about in uh, in the book. Um, and what that means is a lot of people who would otherwise be occupying those middle-income jobs are pushed down to compete in some of the lower income areas, and that has implications for wages and inequality and unemployment and all of those sorts of things. So um, to what extent do you think the dislocation that may be caused by this kind of double whammy of globalisation followed by technology uh, means that it means that Trumpism, if I can put it broad, more broadly than Donald Trump himself, is, is yes. more, more a longer term problem or issue than an aberration? I think that's exactly right, Alan. That's one of my real fears is that, you know, along with the anxieties about where people fit uh, in workplaces dominated by machines, that encourages people to consider the sort of uh, fringe elements in their politics. It makes them look for political alternatives, not just Trump, uh, as you mentioned, but right around the world. There is that prospect. And what what the story is there is a lot of people feel with some justification that the rules of the economy are written to benefit somebody else. And so they want to rewrite the rules. And I would like to rewrite the rules too. But along the lines of a, you know, a a country where we've got, you know, inclusive economic growth, where people are being rewarded for effort, where we've got a decent social safety net. And part of all three of those objectives is to work out well, how do we teach and train our people to succeed? How do we get the social security right? How do we get the industrial relations right? And how do we change our approach to technology uh, so that we can access the benefits of it without deny, without, um, so that we can access the benefits of technological change? And I think I say in the book, and Mike and I say in the book, that we think that technological change in the workplace is arguably the defining anxiety of our time. There are a lot of other things that people are worried about. 
climate change, terrorism, a lot of things that they have uh, reason to be worried about. But I think this is really the main game in the time that I'd like to spend in the federal parliament. I think this is the main issue that, issue that we'll need to confront. In the chapter entitled What Governments Could Do, you say let's begin with what not to do, a universal basic income paid to everyone. So why not? Well, a lot of um, high-profile people have pitched that up as an idea, and I, I don't sort of lightly dismiss that, that idea necessarily, but we spent a long time thinking about it. We spent probably more than a year thinking about it, Mike Quigley and I. And when you really look at it, what a universal basic income does uh, is it has the capacity to make society less equal. What you want with Social Security is you want it targeted to the people who need it most, but what a universal basic income would do would be to give everybody the same amount of money. That would be very expensive as well. Even if we gave everybody $10,000, for example, that would be more than a doubling. That would cost more than twice the current Social Security budget, and that has implications for things like tax uh, and all the rest of it. So we're not big fans of the universal basic income. We think there are other paths that you should go down. But I think it is a really good example. It's a pretty radical idea. And I think that's a really good example of the fact that this is troubling people so much that they are prepared to discuss and deliberate on changes as substantial as that. Well, in fact, it'd be, it would involve a complete reshaping of the welfare system, wouldn't it? Yeah, and we've got a really well-targeted social security system. I mean, the, the um, international institutions have said for some time about Australia, particularly um, you know, with the efforts that have been put into means testing, uh, over the last uh, 10 or 12 years or so, that we've got a targeted social security system. That means we give ourselves every chance of providing support to people who need it most, uh, whereas going down the path of a UBI would really unwind a lot of that good work and it would give money to people who don't need it at all. Uh, and so for all of these reasons, we don't we don't support it. There was a, you know, we don't dismiss it, as I said, but we're, it's not something that we are, it's not one of our 33 recommendations in this book. Um, you, talk, you, you examine and talk about the tax the robots idea that a few people have put forward, including Robert Schiller. Mm. Um, uh, what's your view about that? Yeah, well, Robert Schiller, as you know, Alan, is a, is a huge deal in the global economic community, and he has pitched up this idea of, of taxing capital differently, especially taxing uh, robots and then using that money for training. And that's a pretty uh, powerful idea in one sense, and others like Bill Gates have, uh, have also... Uh, back that idea. We're not quite ready to recommend that uh, in the book. We discuss it. Uh, we say that there's a lot going on in the international conversation about taxing robots that we should be a part of, uh, but we don't think there's sufficient uh, rigour or detail around that idea yet to, you know, to pick it up off the shelf and implement it in Australia. So you've got, um, you're, you're proposing three improvements to Australian social security. Can you just run us through what, what you're suggesting? Yeah, well, we think that um, technology has, has the capacity to do some real good when it comes to social security and sort of more broadly social services. You know, we've got all of this data which, you know, we want to use the data in the social security system for good, not evil. We want to use it as a way of, you know, better targeting and assisting people, not just using it for, you know, punitive uh, interventions. That's one thing. Another thing is there's a lot of Australians with a disability who would like to work more. Uh, but whose disability prevents them from doing so. And so there are technological avenues open to them to augment their work and to make that work uh, possible. We also need to think differently about 
uh, a term you'd be familiar with, which pops its head up over has popped its head up over the years, which is reciprocal obligation. And I think too often that's been narrowed down to a focus on work for the dole. But I think we could broaden that out, particularly for older displaced workers in things like mentoring and volunteering. We need to rethink that. But the big thing is because people can anticipate having more and more transitions between jobs, their jobs will turn over more frequently. If you graduate from year 12 at the moment, you can anticipate having something like 17 different employers uh, in, your, in your life, five different careers. Uh, an average of just over three years per um, per job. And so we need to care about those transitions between work. And that means things like income smoothing, things like wage insurance, uh, other ways that we can smooth people's incomes out to allow for the bumpy incomes they get in the more volatile jobs market. Now, um, obviously, your focus is on social and workplace changes and, um, uh, and economic changes, but our audience... And the constant investor is are is investors. Yeah. Have you given much thought to how best investors should approach this? Well, I think the best thing for investors uh, and also you know C- CEOs and senior managers of businesses around the country is think about where do we fit uh, in this global economy dominated by machines, and our big chance there really is to get our skills base uh, up to scratch. That means you know, appreciating that we can't just do one bit of training or learning at the end of high school and hope that that sustains us for the next 40 years of one career. And the Singaporeans have got a really good um, uh, initiative called Skills Future, which tries to say to business and to investors, you know, let's reward the workers who want to constantly retrain, not as some kind of triage when people lose their job uh, and are on the, you know, temporarily on the scrap heap, Uh, But to try and work out how do we make training a constant part of people's work week? How do we make it ongoing and habitual and granular and industry-led? And I think whether you're an investor or an industry leader, we've all got an interest in getting that right. So one of the main focuses really of the policy proposals is around how we teach and train people for the future. And what about artificial intelligence? What, What do you and Mike think the implications of that are for the corporate world? Well, I think the main thing for for the corporate world is, you know, the way that we can interpret data and recognise patterns, uh, not just in the sort of narrow um, approach to things like trading, but right across the spectrum. Uh, We can identify um, and understand and analyse big trends in industry, which we couldn't necessarily do before because artificial intelligence has the capacity to learn from what's gone before and to learn from new inputs and new data. So it's pretty exciting, I think, from an investor point of view and from a corporate uh, point of view, the sorts of things which are possible, which we may not have thought of 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. Have you come out of this process, writing the book, um, with some um, clear ideas about what you want to do with your own money? Well, I, um, I'm a pretty passive investor, as you'd appreciate, being in the parliament. It's... Uh, it's, it's um, you know, we have a pretty hands-off approach to how our money is managed for obvious reasons. We don't want to get caught up in any kinds of uh, any kind of conflicts. But I think what it has helped me appreciate really are the big trends coming at us down the pipeline and what they mean for government policy above all rather than individual uh, investment strategy. And I've also really appreciated that as people have learned that we're writing this book uh, over the last uh, 12, 18 months or so, people from all walks of life, investors, uh, financial planners, all the way down to, 
you know, schools and teachers and all of that sort of thing. Everybody's got an interest in this. Everybody's got a stake in it. And I think we've written it at a time where people are really turning their mind to it. So that's a good thing. Great to talk to you, Jim. Thanks. Good on you, Alan. Thanks for the opportunity. And that was Jim Chalmers, Labor MP, Shadow Minister for Finance and author with Mike Quigley of Changing Jobs, the fair go in the machine age.